What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George. That's my name. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I have, my memory is getting worse and worse and worse. It's really bad. Um, I forgot my own name. Um, I'm like, sneak on. I am here joined, as always, for episode 155 by the talent, the legend, the the one we should all obey. Mr. Travis Croft, how are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. I am glad to be back. Um, mm. Glad to be back. I guess I owe anyone unfortunate enough to still be listening to this show after all these years an apology. Um, if you're listening to the podcast or if you watch the stream today or later, we did miss last week. Uh, and this time it wasn't my fault and it wasn't his fault either. It wasn't the weather's fault. It was the internet. Yes. And this neighborhood went down last uh, week. Uh, for about 24 hours, unfortunately, from about Wednesday afternoon to about Thursday afternoon. Uh, we did try hotspotting. Um, I, just, oh, I tried hotspotting. It wasn't going to – everyone in the neighbourhood was hotspotting off their phones, I think, so the mm-hmm. 4G network seemed a bit clogged. So it was going to be unendurably awful. Um, mm-hmm. It was going to be like one of those satellite tele- – remember when satellite used to be new back in the 80s where like, we like, and we crossed live to Los Angeles by satellite. And you know, they're like yeah. – and there was that bizarre delay. So I'd be like, yeah, go, go, ahead, go, you know, go, go ahead, written, you know, uh, Richard or whatever, you know. And then, yes, hi, I'm making comedy to live now from, you know, like, it's just talking over people. It was awful. Um, so we saw it. Sorry about that. We are back. This is the first time in the official new uh, uh, electric yes. phone studio here, uh, or whatever we want to call it. Um, so it's a bit echoey, um, so I apologize for that. But you know, it's a nicer room than the old one. Yes, it's it looks awesome. It looks way more professional than any backdrop that I've ever had. I mean, at least I you can kind of see nerddom all around me. <laughs> but see, did I have like camera a little bit, and suddenly it's just a trash show. I have like books and stuff over here, so you know, you're the intelligent one. I'm. <laughs> the guy that collects plastic <laughs> it feeds you is considering it where you work you know um that, that makes sense because you get I assume, discounts and such things i am a product of my work <laughs> you, you, you are committed to it you are committed to you know being <laughs> the best damn plastic figurine salesman the world could expect i will ship it like nobody else has ever shipped it <laughs> Uh, I read, um, but we have a decent show this week. I mm, think we, do. Um, we have an interesting chain film in the form of Murder by Death, which was chosen yeah. by George. I have the keys this week, so mm-hmm. lordy, lordy, lordy knows where I'm going to take it this week. Um, mm. There are plenty of places to go after um, Murder by Death with that cast. Yeah, absolutely, and I. Probably not going to go one of the obvious routes because mm-hmm. exactly what they'd expect me to do. Um, <laughs> Um, the Melbourne International Film Festival just concluded, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw some interesting stuff there, some less interesting stuff there. Probably mm-hmm. going to try and talk about it a little bit uh, mm-hmm. tonight. Um, I apologize in advance because how much of it our international audience is going to be interested in or our domestic audience is going to be if any of our audience is going to be interested in it. I have no idea. It's, uh, it's stuff you may not even ever be able to see because... The good thing about uh, film festivals is sometimes you get to see stuff that, you know, never comes mm. out, certainly never comes out at the multiplex. And, you know, you um, you probably don't even see it. Um, you have to go hunting for it on video on demand. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, especially considering the way that particularly Disney are determined to try and kill cinema by just re-releasing exactly the same things. Like next week, they're re-releasing fucking Spider-Man No Way Home into the cinemas again with a few minutes of extra content. (sighs) Not alone this one, Sony released Morbius like three times or something. And they yeah, didn't but- even splice in the bit where he says it's Mormon time. <laughs> um, and I don't know if you've seen following what HBO has been up to of late. There've been some shenanigans afoot over there. Well, the whole um, traditional Los Angeles, Hollywood machine seems to be determined to eat itself in many ways disney is just homogenizing everything you've got warner brothers that are shutting down every production and just going oh yes we're rebranding and refocusing and not producing anything and then you've got sony's like look at spider-man and then you've got universal that makes failed updates to their monster movies and Poor efforts at dinosaur movies. It's going well. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) That's why we have A24 surviving and thriving. Should we crack on and talk about the the chain film first up? Mm, I say yes. I say yes. You said it occurred to me, we've been doing the chain now for well over two years now, I think. Mm, um, Um, I think it was um, 2020 we started the chain. Mm-hmm. We have gone on because our first movie was Streets of Fire. Of course, where all good films uh, review programs begin. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, action musicals. Yep, yep. But um, it we have we have seen it gone gone through some very interesting movies in this chain. I mean, obviously, going with the movie that everyone knows of Streets of Fire, um, we've watched such things as the Interview. We have watched Coraline. We've got Black Klansman, uh, Carlito's Way, Whiplash, Only the Brave, Knight of the Generals. And now we're... The Death Machine, uh, I think possibly the highlight of these series so far. Brad DeRiff, we thank you. Um, Uh, Thank you very much, Brad. So Murder by Death, uh, George Mm. shows this is a 1976 uh, comedy crime mystery film, according to IMDb. Mm. Mm-hmm. Five famous literary detective characters and their sidekicks are invited to a bizarre mansion to solve an even stranger mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, directed by Robert Moore, who I've never heard of. Uh, written by Neil Simon, who is, I think, most famous as a playwright, um, I suspect. Because um, this film feels very much like a film play to me. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned earlier, an incredible cast. Peter Falk, Alec Guinness, Peter Sellers, uh, Truman Capote, David Niven, Maggie Smith. Mm-hmm. James mm-hmm. Cromwell, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. Of course, David Niven being our connective tissue from Guns of Navarone. Um, you also, well, it's probably also worth mentioning that uh, this film does absolutely not pass the 2022 woke test. Um, <laughs> it's a very, very, very questionable content in this film uh, mm-hmm. for those. So straight away, if you're someone who is easily offended, Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not going to enjoy this film, and mm-hmm. not that you will probably work because it's quite difficult to find. Um, it's uh, it's probably one you should give a miss. Particularly notable is 
the casting of Peter Sellers yes. as Sidney Wang, who is a Chinese character, I think. Yes. And he is every single cliched negative stereotype of a I think he's supposed to be Chinese American. I guess so, because he speaks kind English of. and he's he's he um he his sidekick is his adopted son. Who is who, Jap- he's Japanese but speaks very much with an American accent. Yeah. Um, and I think his talk about he mentioned San Francisco a few times. Mm. Um, so I, I'm guessing, um, yeah, uh, that if that was the case, he's supposed to be Chinese American. But yeah, those who uninitiated it are probably not, maybe not familiar with the fact that Peter Sellers was neither Chinese nor American. He mm-hmm. was very British, um, and yes. it's I, I think it can only be described as actually uh, a, a role filled with pretty disgusting uh racial stereotypes pretty pretty mm-hmm. damaging um, yeah, kind of, um the almost borderline buck teeth the makeup to to change his eyes to look a little bit more um accentuated on the edges and of course the outlandish costume that he is always in his very broken um english to the point where truman capote keeps on talking about it all the time it's like add the words that you need to add and it's 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 tough to watch in Um, abilities then of course because he has an adopted son who is japanese there's a number of very nasty racial comments about the japanese Mm -hmm. directed at his son uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess it's significantly less offensive, but um, James Cromwell makes his film debut, mm-hmm. um, theatrical film debut in this movie, playing a French chauffeur. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's probably okay to have non-French people play French people um, still, but, you know. Uh, no, you can only have French people play French people. Give it time. Give it time. Um, but it's just about, we're just about there and everything else. you got to... Mm-hmm. You can't you can't have a, a person mm-hmm. play a role which mm-hmm. they themselves are not, you know, a member exactly of exactly that person. I mean I I've I've heard conversations now that, that, that you cannot play a Jewish character unless you are Jewish. Yeah, there's I, I remember hearing something about that. It's like okay. Obviously there's no that law that says to play other people that they're not. Otherwise everything is a biography. To the point where we've now got obviously, you know, I, mean, I can see the point to some degree, but you know, anyway, mm. the whole other debate. Um, yeah. but never just to say that it was actually quite jarring, mm. um, to see him play the role the way he did, even though he, how do I say this? I think he did well. <laughs> if you're gonna play a horrible racial stereotype of a, a, a particular community, he did that about as well as could be expected, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's trying to kind of divorce ourselves from modern sensibilities and approaches to social commentary and expectation of um, representation now. Yeah, he he played the role that as was written and he played that role well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the role was good. No, yeah, it's 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 uh, you can see 
it's it, it's Peter Sellers is obviously an incredible talent. Mm, mm. Um, so, um, and but then um, you've also got um, kind of every single one of the characters is played to the to the extreme borders of borderline grotesque. Well, they um, are a parody. It is a it is yeah. a film is a parody of yes. detective movies and murder mystery movies. Mm. Uh, and these characters themselves are parodies of famous literary characters. So mm-hmm. uh, we have um, Ella, Elsa Lanchester playing Jessica Marbles, who I, you know, is uh, Marple. Marple. Yep. You've got the, the Belgian guy who is obviously Pyro. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got David Niven sort of playing, I don't exactly know who he's supposed to be, but sort of your up to proper English general, maybe a Sherlock Holmesian kind of character, I don't know, but like. Um, and you've got Peter Fork playing Sam Diamond, but you know, like the down died in the world, you know, American private eye kind of character. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a, a strange cross between like Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca crossed with Peter Fork's most famous role of Columbo. Right. It's like, Which okay. came after this weirdly. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he just thought, you know what? I enjoyed playing that character. <laughs> I actually thought he was funny. He had some good lines. Yeah. Mm. Last time I trusted Dean was Paris in 1940. She said she was going out for a bottle of wine. Two hours later, the Germans marched into France. You know, like, it's <laughs> um, uh, locked from the inside. That can only mean one thing. And I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> it, 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 there's some funny mm-hmm. stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, like uh, to go back to uh, Peter Sellers' character, mm. I think one of his um, first um, his first sort of gags is like, you know, your observation is like a uh, television on a honeymoon, uh, unnecessary. Um, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I, I have deliberately taken away the accent on that mm. um, that one because I'm not doing it. Yeah. Um, but even, even the the lines that he comes out with, the way that they're delivered, it's when you analyze it now, it's like if almost everything he says sounds like a bad fortune cookie reading, and yes, that's and intentional. It's very deliberate. Yeah, uh, and I guess he's—I don't know—the famous Chinese detective. He's parodying um, Fu Manchu, maybe. I don't know what the character is there, but again, yeah. these characters are all very much parodies of these famous literary characters who are maybe more famous in the 70s than they are today. Mm. Um, so I guess that's why everything's turned out to 11 and everybody's mm. playing it to the hilt. But I don't know. I, like I said, I hinted at the start. This film for me felt like a filmed play. Mm. Like this would have worked really well on the stage probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that it's been particularly well translated onto the screen. Because it's so cheesy, it's so mm. over the top. It's mm. almost impossible to take it. It probably isn't supposed to be taken seriously, but I need to take it seriously enough as a film to, yeah, be engaged by it. And mm. it doesn't. If I look at a film like, say, Airplane slash Flying High, which is mm. an obvious parody of disaster films, which is of a similar vintage from memory, mm. uh, maybe five years after this, you don't take that film seriously, but it's also funny enough. That you don't care and you understand mm. it's poking what it's poking fun at. Well, I understand what this is poking fun at. Maybe this film wasn't funny enough mm. to keep the parody afloat for me. What did you think? Um, just as a side note, the um parody characters that they are based off 
obviously we've got the Hercule Poirot, we've got Miss Marple, there's Charlie Chan, uh, yeah. Nick and Nora Charles from The Third Man, uh, The Thin Man, sorry, and Sam Spade, um, who uh, was in the Maltese Humphrey Bogart. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, this, this is a weirdly paced movie because it is, it's a parody painting to the extremes of these characters to just try and find as much comedy in them as possible. And as a side effect of that, there isn't really any story. Like it's 90, like eight, it feels like 75% of the movie is them getting to the mansion and then having a dinner. And then suddenly it's like, okay, we're going to go to sleep. Everyone's well, almost killed. And then it's like, okay, round up, boom, done, out. It is. It moves very quickly. And, and yeah. the, things that, the things that they tend to focus, the film, you're right, focuses a very long time on the arrivals. Mm. And the, jo the joke probably only there, only probably needed to be told once, being mm. character arrives at the mansion, the mm. rickety breach that almost kills them. Then someone tries to drop a statue on their head as they're entering the house. Mm. The mansion's doorbell is Fay Ray screaming. Mm. Um, yeah, that's the gag. I will say one of the best consistent jokes through the first portion of this movie is Alec Guinness <laughs> as Benson Mum. <laughs> the Guinness, uh, he's actually really good in this Alec Guinness. Like, mm -hmm. um, and not to say you have to say all the performances, despite yes. the terrible racial <laughs> stereotypes, uh, yes. are really quite good. Yeah. Um, but he was probably the one that surprised me the most because I guess as modern film viewers, what do we associate Alec Guinness with most? It's mm. definitely Obi-Wan Kenobi. But from mm -hmm. the other one I think of is Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm -hmm. um, not See, comedy. For for me, I do know him from comedy, and he did partner up with Peter Sellers previously on the original Lady Killers, which is a classic British comedy. Um, and again, he he doesn't go to the same level of so oblivious to everyone else that it's hilarious of Leslie Nielsen say, but there's just this naturalism to the absurdity of a blind, and the, the combination of a blind butler and a deaf and dumb cook. <laughs> and him just eventually slowly finding out that there's nothing been cooked because she couldn't understand anything he was saying and then him just walking to a random spot in the kitchen and just going you're fired and she's just sitting there just like completely oblivious that he's even talking uh they have come into our second thing that this film steps on which is ableism uh, i don't mm. think we're allowed to make fun of people with disabilities anymore yeah um so that one's out and then a little bit of homophobia later on so also yeah. involving um uh alec guinness um mm. but Maybe I'm a horrible person for laughing, but that was that was it was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but he he's he was quite a turn up for me. It was a surprise. I haven't seen Alec Guinness do comedy before, and I thought he was wonderful in the role of Benson Mum. But that but that joke at the start kind of went on for way too long. And yeah. then you showed into the rooms, and the rooms are garbage, you know, and that yeah. went on for way too long. Yeah. And like it just as you sort of note, there really isn't actually a story here. The idea is Truman Capote who doesn't actually play Truman Capote, he plays someone called Lionel Twain, 
has invited the world's greatest detectives to his mansion in the middle of nowhere um, with a view to uh, committing a, a murder taking place that they are unable to solve. Mm. Um, which could be an interesting setup for a plot. Yeah. Um, in fact, I found myself afterwards thinking this film would make, I think maybe we should have a look at me making this film. If the new mm. Nights Out film does well, which is, yeah. I feel like they're a, sort of a, you know, a spiritual, a spiritual successor to this film, the Nights Out films. Mm. Um, cause that would be kind of cool. And it'd be a little bit like, um, the league of extraordinary gentlemen, which is also an awful film. But mm. when you sit there and think about the plot and go, that's fucking cool. I want to see that. Yeah. You know, the overworld's world's greatest literary detective teaming up to try and solve an unsolvable murder in mm-hmm. a haunted mansion in the countryside. That sounds fucking cool. See, Travis, this just all goes back to your love of what's that? What was that cartoon? Fuck. Um, with the Phantom and oh, uh, Defenders of the Earth. Yes, you just want you just want Defenders of the Earth. That 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 gr- bizarre group team up. That was <laughs> it. Was the the Phantom and Flash Gordon? Yeah, um, the, the King then, Comics characters. Yeah, but, um, um, I don't think was... it's going. I don't think that team up's happening anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen it. But I mean, you know, you kind of wonder sometimes would they ever go at the Phantom again? Being the comic book films are so popular these days, but they haven't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, but you, I would I like those sort of team up movies, but I think it's gonna be fun, like the uh, yeah. the events of 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 being you know murder mysteries. But yeah. maybe you'd really need to tone the comedy down. I I think it's I think it's one this sort of I feel like it would either have to be better written and snappier with the jokes rather than the repetition of the jokes that, that this has very frequently um, just going a bit more of the flying high airplane route of you don't have time to be able to catch all the jokes because there are so many. And because if you were to get character actors in there to, to take on these roles that are just, really good at improv or just rolling with it and just playing straight through. I think the comedy, that intense level of comedy that they were really trying for could work. Alternatively, you could bring it back a little bit and, and bring a little bit more of the mystery into it and play up that whole idea of, yeah, what if all of these famous detectives couldn't solve this fucking case. In this case, why not both? I'd love a bit of comedy, bit of mystery. Mm-hmm. You know that would work well, but I, I didn't do that in this film. Mm. Um, the uh, conclusion was mm. kind of ridiculous. You know what this film oh, reminded me most of all. Remember, when we probably a couple of years ago now we watched the um, Peter Sellers version of Casino Royale. Oh and, yeah, and it was just it was a bizarre hodgepodge of a film. You know, mm-hmm. This film isn't quite as disastrous as that because that film was made by about four different people, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and they just smooshed together. Yep. Um, this one is is a little bit more consistent, but it's kind of that ends that final act where it's like everyone survives being the attempted murder in their bedrooms mm-hmm. by various means, uh, mm-hmm. only to turn up to accuse one by one, make an accusation of uh, about who the real killer is. Uh, only to be proven wrong by the next person who walks into the room and makes a subsequent accusation. That, you know, and it was just kind of like, okay, again, like this joke was funny the first time you did it. 
Yes. Then you did it four more times. Yeah. And again, the, to, to the understanding of it, having it do that so repeatedly, especially for the end, that is kind of making the point of in all of these detective murder mystery things, there's always the twist and the comedy of a twist on the twist on the twist. But everyone knows the well-said uh, phrase, comedy is the rule of three. Just do it three times. Don't, don't do it more. And that, that's all you need. That's and and you need. We, we got the gag the first time. Yes. <laughs> we know, we understood it. Yes. You know, the, the, the Perry Mason effect of, ah, I did it. I'm glad. I'm glad I tells you. You know, like, <laughs> they, you, you always get them to confess on the stand, you know, like in this case, in the detective, it's almost a Scooby-Doo ending. If it, if it done a Scooby-Doo ending like in Wayne's World, it would have been mm, perfect. Yep. Um, but then you got the Wayne's World did it. A shitty Saturday Night Live film from yeah. 30 years ago did it better. They go, isn't it funny how in detective stories or Scooby-Doo, they always go, it's old man with us in the amusement park. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did the same thing here, but it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I understand. Yes, you're very clever, Neil Simon, but it's, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I get it. I get the yeah. joke, but you don't need to keep doing it. And this is where the yeah. homophobia comes in. In one case where um, Sam Diamond insinuates that he met um, uh, he met Twain in a gay bar or something of that nature, and uh, <laughs> yeah, of, the interesting thing I found about that homophobic or sort of like gay element of the story was it wasn't played like I didn't feel like it was played to mock the gay community anywhere near as aggressively as Peter Sellers being cast as a Chinaman. Um, That seemed more charged to me because it was, I I don't know if it was maybe cult, uh, maybe me thinking it was just culturally at a point where there it was not necessarily illegal or wrong or anything, but it was just an unspoken thing that happened. Um, gay bars and that sort of stuff. It was something that was slowly coming into the, the zeitgeist of society. And it's like, it's a thing, but we don't talk about that thing. Not yet, at least. Give it give it another 25 years and then we'll generally be okay with talking about that in, in public. Well, not being gay and not being... A- Someone of Chinese descent. I'm really not in a position to make any kind of judgment about which one's more offensive than the other one. I'm going <laughs> to say it was played up as a shameful thing. So the line was mm. Twain mm. picked up Sam in a gay bar. Sam's like, I was working on a case, mm. working every night for six months. I got 50 bucks a day in expenses. I had damn queries. Mm. It's worth online. Twain mm. had Polaroid pictures of Sam in drag. I was in disguise. Lots of dames go on those joints. I never kissed nobody. Um, mm. And the idea of being gay or going to a gay bar or dressing in drag mm. as a shameful thing was mm. the the angle, well, well was the, the insinuation there. So mm. um, where you know, so probably very offensive to somebody for that nature. And again, something you yeah. absolutely would not do today. It so. would not. It would not fly to today. Or if, like, if they were to remake this, do you think it would be? maybe easier to to play with everything and the comedy that they were trying to go for in this 
if they modernized it rather than had it as a period piece? Well, I think you'd have to modernize it. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think there's um, just too many pitfalls. Hopefully, I mean, I guess the difficulty would be that a lot of his characters are maybe so faded in the public's memory. Like mm. Charlie Chan, I vaguely remember that. I think now there are a lot of Charlie Chan movies mm. back in like the 40s and 50s, maybe. Yeah. Um, so maybe there's a portion of the audience who remember Charlie Chan, uh, Miss Marple. Miss Marple films seem to be staples of, you know, the BBC on, you know, uh, PBS in the States or the ABC here in Australia on Saturday nights for old people. Um, Hercule Poirot, a little bit more in the public obvious mm-hmm. consciousness because we've had the um, uh, the Jeremy Irons films uh, of late, you know, Definite Nile and Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, Sam Spade, I don't really, I'm vaguely familiar with the character, mm. um, you know, so that might be problematic. But I think you'd have to modernize it. Yeah, um, and you know, you just know Hollywood couldn't couldn't resist like recasting Pyro as a woman, uh, you know, or something like that, and mm. um, some sort of window dressing of that nature. Mm. But as far as I know, they're not doing that, and that's probably a good thing because I don't think anyone would want to be associated with <laughs> with this film. Um, yeah. Not yeah. because it's, look, I'm not going to sit here and say it's good because I didn't think it was good. No. Um, but uh, just the just the general racism involved. Uh, yeah, questionable choices. Yeah, um, it was not not only racism and sexism and homophobia, but also ableism, as we've talked about, and the attitudes towards women is horrendous. <laughs> they they are very much seen and not heard. <laughs> and I guess just more broadly, it, like I said at the start, it was just it felt like a film play. George gave a right idea of it. There's not a lot of story here. Mm. If yeah, I just if you don't find the joke the first time funny the first time, then you've got to listen to it four more times and it gets a bit old. I found it slow, mm. ponderous. Um mm. and uh while I'm a good choice, really interesting choice from you. But um at the same time, I'm a little bit flummoxed by the seven point three and it has an IMDB. I mm. maybe it's an older audience who just you know gets those gags, but not yeah. for me. Yeah, not for me. No. All right. So, where are you driving us to next? I told you I was going to take you somewhere unexpected. Maybe, maybe I don't know, but I could have got a lot more unexpected. We've been watching some interesting films. We've watched some classy films. Ooh. I would like to make an addendum and a request mm. as a companion um, viewing of this clue. Well, the other thing, I almost went with Gosford Park, which I think is an even better companion piece of this, and that starred Maggie Smith as well. Mm. Um, that's sort of your country manor murder mystery. Mm. Um, but I didn't go with Gosford Park. I decided to take us more down market, shall we say. I think we've been, oh. very, okay. we've been very kind. We've been looking at films that maybe weren't great, like in the Bounty, but mm-hmm. at least they were... Big productions and grand mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Marlon Brando. But I am taking us to a different kind of Marlon Brando. You know, the man who was a giant in his field, an icon in his field. And this is one of his first attempts to transition into cinema. Uh, and we're going to follow, though, Richard Narita, um, who played um, Peter Sellers' son, Willy Wang. Oh, yes. And we're going back to uh, his role uh, as Zukaki in the 1991 science fiction action comedy masterpiece, Suburban Commander. 
You have done it. You have successfully got us to Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I can go home now. Everyone can go home. We've done it. Maybe, and that's uh, the end of Chain Movie. We're done. Podcast is finishing. <gasps> welcome. Oh, my God. Thanks for that. We can, if I wanted to, we could legitimately go to Clue because of Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd, Shelley Duvall, Larry Miller, some of the better known names. Mark Calloway in here, better known as The Undertaker. Um, mm-hmm. one of the bad guys. This, of course, is you know, the, uh, not exactly the film debut of Hulk Hogan. I think he was in a Rocky movie before this. But this yeah. is his first, I think it's his first um, starring, you know, uh, starring role. Is his, the film's built around him. Uh, interstellar, mm. he- in interstellar hero from a distant world visits Earth and tries to fit in with a mundane yet kind suburban family. This has a 4.5 in IMDb. Um, I don't think it it did very well for critics either. Rotten Tomatoes score of 15% from critics, 33 from audiences. Um, I like it. I went to the cinema and saw it when I was 14. So, um, yes, yes. Hulk Hogan, very much the Marlon Brando of a professional wrestling world. Everyone hated him, but they acknowledge him. You can, they can't help but acknowledge his influence on the industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for those who play along at home, that is available to rent on Apple TV and via Amazon. That will be next week. Uh, oh, a bit of um, Suburban Commando for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're welcome. Feel free to take us sideways into, you know, uh, Rocky Three or one of these other various, like the Mister Santa with muscles potentially. Mister no. um, Mister Nanny, don't try, go, don't try and direct me. <laughs> uh, should we move on? Yeah, let's let's move on. Should we talk about the other thing that we've both watched this week of She Hulk? Let's. I've only watched the first episode. I haven't got around to a second oh, one. Yet. The first episode is the only one out because okay. it comes out on Thursdays. Thursdays. Yes. Um, so this is the latest from uh, Marvel on mm-hmm. Disney Plus. She Hulk Attorney at Law. Jennifer Walters navigates the complicated life of a single 30 something attorney who also happens to be a green six foot seven inch superpower Hulk. Uh, starring be Happy. Described as plucky. Could be a plucky, but she's a lawyer, not advertising executives. And I think mm-hmm. lawyers aren't generally considered mm-hmm. plucky. Completely different fields. Completely. Um, Tatiana Maslani has yep. been cast as Jennifer Walters, aka She Hulk, uh, probably best known for her role in the British series Orphan Black, I think mm-hmm. it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we have Mark Ruffalo popping up in here in the first episode as Bruce Banner slash the Hulk himself. And there are some other familiar faces in here Jamila, Jamila, Jamil. Who was in The Good Place is mm-hmm. uh, a familiar one in as well. Um, mm-hmm. Tim Roth and Charlie Cox as Abomination and Daredevil are going to pop up later in the series. Yes. So we're told, along with Benedict Wong as Chang. Um, this is supposed to be a comedy, uh, mm-hmm. as a very, very heavy comedic tone. It's mm-hmm. based on the She Hulk character, which was, I think, was it Stan? Not Stanley, it was um, the other big guy at uh, Marvel. Anyway, from about 1980. Steve Ditko? Anyway, uh, I, I will look it up, but um, I can't. It's not a new character. In case some of the uh, shitheads out there on the internet have been kind of going, "Oh, Disney could work," um, 
but uh, Stanley and John Buscema were the creators. Um, she is a legacy character from yeah, the uh, Marvel comic books. Mm-hmm. What did you make of the first episode? It really wants to be Ali McBeal in the MCU. Um, that kind of plucky, kind of kitschy kind of attitude and feel. And my God, were they determined to go, all right, we are going to introduce a new superhero as quickly as we possibly can and ignore, and we're really going to gloss over everything else. Like the fact that Mark Ruffalo's banner has got seemingly a very close, friendly relationship with a cousin who we've not heard hide nor hair of at all in the times that we've seen him. Um, there's no strange resentment between them for him being in space for years and things like that and anything like that. And they really fucking rush it. And the only reason that there is any care or incidental comedy in it is because of the quality of the performers of Tatiana and Mark in those things, because it fucking whips along at breakneck speed. I've commented in the past about how like the first two Harry Potter movies are kind of flick books for the best moments of the books and not actually telling the story. That's kind of what this feels like. It's flashing through it as quickly as it can. So it's like, okay, the real series starts at episode two. Okay. again disney why why don't you just go you know what this is our tv show we can have the episodes as long as we want let's just give them 45 minutes for the first episode or an hour for the first episode so that it just feels more succinct and well written and actually give these actors time to ingratiate themselves with the audience rather than just I, I agree with pretty much all of that. This is it's rips along. It's so fast. It's just unnecessarily so in a way. Mm. Like we've talked at length about Marvel in the past and compared yeah. made the obvious comparison to DC, who have been significantly less successful in this space than, than Marvel. Mm-hmm. And the strength of Marvel was built on the fact that it went out and they gave us a two-hour Iron Man film to start with before introducing any of the other Avengers. And no mm-hmm. one knew the fuck. No, Iron Man was not exactly a top tier comic not book property time, no. in 2008. No, yeah. Nor was Robert Danny Jr. A grade, you know, uh, talent. He was kind of washed up. Um, yeah. And then they did the same thing of Captain America. People vaguely who you remembered who that was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we didn't really give a shit, you know. Um, and we got two hour origin films mm-hmm. for all of them. Um, very um, reverent of, of, of films uh, actually giving mm-hmm. us. A real good introduction to who these characters were, what motivated them, where they mm-hmm. came from, how they got to where they were as superheroes, and an insight into their superhero persona. You know, Robert Downey Jr. surviving in that cave and, you know, having to build that suit to escape, or, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Steve Rogers uh, being a test experiment, then being used as a propaganda tool and only really yeah. actually becoming a hero when he mm-hmm. had to go save his friends from the Nazis. Here, we, you said it's half an hour and we get, it's so fucking lame. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking lame how she gets turned into a Hulk. Yeah. And it, she gets a little bit of his blood in her blood or something in a car accident and all of a sudden, oh, you're a Hulk now. 
Sorry, there is precedent for that for the Incredible Hulk. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson gets a little bit of blood on his forehead that um, you slowly start to see his kind of forehead grow as he becomes the thinker. So <laughs> there's precedent there, Travis. Is that the Ed Norton one? <laughs> yes, it is. It's been a while since I... Is that still canon? <laughs> Technically, uh, yes. It's got um, Robert Downey Jr. in the end credits. I haven't seen that one in a lot. Look, and I understand that the actual nature of how she became a She-Hulk in the comic books was mm. she got a blood transfusion mm. from, from, from her cousin, Bruce Banner. Mm-hmm. Uh, an emergency blood transfusion. I might have bought that, right? If you get a liter of someone's blood and they've got, you know, whatever the fuck it is that's inside Banner's blood. Yeah, okay, okay, that could work. But, like, a, you know, a mild dash of his blood is not, I don't know, it just seems a stretch to me. And it was lame. I guess myself and Michelle were on the couch watching, rolling our eyes going, you've Mm got to be fucking kidding me. And I had to look it up to see what the real story was in the comic Mm -hmm. book. You're like, that would have made more sense. Yeah. Now, let's go to the big button question and topic of what seems to be, after after this first episode, what seems to be the number one message of She-Hulk. And that is... The difficulty of being a woman in modern society. Um, it's interesting here. So on reflection, I think that's an interesting angle to take. Agreed. Uh, it really resonated with Michelle, uh, mm-hmm. being the only woman in the room at the time mm-hmm. while we're watching it. And yep. her opinion, therefore, has to really be taken into account mm-hmm. as someone with a little bit of first-hand experience of what being a woman's like, mine mm-hmm. less so recently anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's – I didn't like how it was delivered, though. I yeah. thought it, it felt really cringy and ham-fisted, like everything Marvel tries to do in this space. Where they try to go, oh, but you know, we, we're for women now. Like the, the we everything they, with the Eternals still somehow. But that what they <laughs> did with Captain Marvel, where they just jammed all that stuff in mm. there. Which I'm like, I don't disagree with it. I just disagree yeah. with how you did it. Um, or the team up at the end of Endgame where she's not alone mm-hmm. and all the female Avengers just turn up from wherever they were and happen to be in the one place and mm-hmm. you know, kick the shit out of you know Thanos for five minutes. And you're like, yeah, again, it's kind of cool, but yeah. it just feels a little ham-fisted and a little forced. Yeah. And it felt ham-fisted and forced here. And I actually tend to disagree with you. I don't know, but I'm a massive fan of the performance of um, uh, Maslani here as um, as – she hulk it's mm. kind of smarmy i mean mm. it just didn't feel real to me like if you woke up and you're now transforming into a six foot seven rage monster occasionally even if you um don't have the alter ego that bruce used to have you mm. are somewhat in control of your faculties mm. um wouldn't it be kind of terrifying scary or upsetting instead she's that's, like, that's where i think that the problem that comes with it is again the speed that they go through this if they had actually just gone yep let's do 45 minutes to have actually just one genuine scene that takes its time and not only allows um jennifer walters to explain you don't seem to realize how how horrible it is being a woman and being told and being explained everything that you already know and going through the list of things that she does kind of do in one of the scenes. But then actually having the flip side of that and seeing more of the revelation and comprehension come on Bruce Banner as well. And him actually realizing 
yes, it's really tough. And, you know, they they kind of play it for jokes of him bringing out that big ring binder of all of the, the ways that he came to, to be used to it and being and, and acclimatizing to be in the Hulk and her just going, yeah, so I think I can skip to this. It's like, yes, but go into that a little bit more because that's a, actually a really interesting narrative story device. So spend some time with it. Play, oh, you're going to just brush through it and get to comedy. Okay. Uh, I should know. Interesting, compelling element there that you hadn't done successfully in MCU before. Why waste it? I, I, think, you, I think you're right. I mean, it, it, it come back to she had a point. Mm. All the things that she talks about in the in her little spiel are mm. right and real and legit. And you kind of go, well, yeah, you you know, you think about being a perspective of a woman if you reject. I mean, the world is re- you can find it everywhere you turn on the internet. But with stories of women rejecting men and mm. those men turning violent on them, or at the very mm. least, the, you know, screaming at the person calling him a bunch of horrible names if it's a rejection on a, on a dating site or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's fucking real. It just didn't mm-hmm. feel real because she's just spurting it out at a million miles an hour off the top mm-hmm. of her head. Um, and as I said, in a, in a really ham-fisted, cheesy for me way, I don't know that it really mm-hmm. deserves to say that it's shit because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as I mm-hmm. said, the only woman in the room watching it with me found that the most interesting portion of the mm. episode by a country mile. So mm. take my opinion on it very mm. much a grain of salt. You know, um, yeah. it would be a big portion of the audience probably really connected with that moment. For me, mm. it just felt, as I said, cheesy and ham-fisted. The mm. other big hot-button topic, though, is the CGI. and has been since the trailer came out. Do you yeah. think it's improved sufficiently? No. Um, it has improved, and some scenes you can clearly see they actually finished the CGI. And other scenes, you can see they ran out of time, and it's like uh, it's good enough, right? There's there's some elements in it where both Jennifer Walters and Mark Ruffalo look more like Ang Lee's Incredible Hulk from what 2010 or whenever that was. Oh, before that, that would have been 2004. Yeah, and it's like okay, either that's really te- real good testament to the work that. ILM did on Ang Lee's Hulk or damning on Disney Marvel property She-Hulk from 2022. Ooh. It's um it's distracting. Mm. Um and there's been a lot of stories out lately about how uh, Marvel treats their VFX artists and the, mm-hmm. the crunch culture and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They need to go down to the Hall of Mirrors and have a good uh, look at themselves, I think, mm. because this is not good enough. Um, oh. It's really, really subpar. It's not yeah. as bad as it was in the trailer, though. We'll pay that. It's not quite as bad as it looked. It doesn't look like a PlayStation 3 game. Um, but it's definitely not a PlayStation 5 game either. You know, <laughs> somewhere in the middle. Um, and I think right now, if you're fucking... You are fucking Disney. You need to be giving us PlayStation 5 graphics because... Mm-hmm. You got all the money. So you got all the studios. Everyone's watching all you. Like, Disney has more subscribers now than Netflix. Yep. So no mm-hmm. excuses. Um, delay it. It's your fucking TV station. Yes. I. What s- happens in video game world? Like you know, the amount of times a game is delayed 
when's it going to be out? When it's fucking ready. Yep. You know, it's it's just a stock thing that happens, and people get mad about it, you know. Um, mm. But uh, we don't seem to be as hard on on a Disney as we would be on, say, a CD Projekt Red when they released, you know, uh, Cyberpunk yeah. unfinished. Uh, yeah. And this is undoubtedly unfinished. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It, it speaks to their still bizarre archaic ideology of, oh, serialized stuff. I get the, the functional reason for doing weekly release. That's totally fine. But if the story is compelling, give it a bit more time. If the story can be wrapped up in 22 minutes instead of 30 do it in 22 minutes. Don't put filler in it just because it's your fucking streaming service. It's your fucking property. You can do it however the fuck you want. People that will be happy. It's, oh, it blows my mind. Um, so I guess in, in a nutshell, I wasn't impressed at all. I didn't find it funny. I did not laugh once. It wasn't funny. Mm -hmm. like, um, uh, the character of Jennifer is smarmy and annoying. For me, mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, mm. Certainly not. No, it's not the worst thing I've seen. Not as bad as say Evie or whatever her fucking name was on Loki. Um, mm. Also smarmy and annoying. Mm. Um, maybe if she gets writers in who can write women who aren't smarmy and annoying because mm -hmm. they aren't and they shouldn't be that way. And yeah. the right. This is the writer of this episode is um, the same uh, same writer who did Pickle Rick. To Rick and Morty. Okay. Uh, just Jessica Gow is her name. And mm -hmm. this is created for television. The show is created by her. She's mm -hmm. done um, Robert Chicken, Rick and Morty, Silicon Valley. Um, she can obviously, you know, and Pickle Rick, which is one of the most iconic episodes mm. of, of Rick and Morty. So uh, I. Yeah, I wonder what's going on. I would probably watch an episode two more, almost yeah. purely in a strength of who she is and what she's done in the past. Going, mm. you can write comedy, lady, so maybe mm. you can nail this. But I, I, it really wasn't good. It was really quiet. I put it up on Facebook because it was very average. And I think mm. that's me being generous. I would give this a serious pass if it didn't have that kind of talent behind it in the writing department. Mm. Yeah. I... um. I'm gonna stick with it for another episode, but the the other thing that really I I haven't read any She-Hulk comics, so I don't know if it's a trope of the comics, but I feel I don't know why she addresses the camera. Apparently, she's famous for that in the comic books. Is breaking the fourth wall. Okay, okay. I no, kind I of feel it. like it's <sighs> somehow. Cheating the system. I feel like Ryan Reynolds would probably be annoyed at being beaten to the screen in the Disney world of Marvel, considering that's Deadpool's thing. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? If they if they really want if they wanted to set the tone for this as a comedy, they could have had just um, it opening up with Jennifer Waters almost doing fucking Ferris Bueller's Day Off style but it's narrated by Deadpool. And then she just goes, excuse me, get the fuck out of this. This is my show. Fuck off. 
See, that would have worked because they're both famous for this, apparently, if you read the comics. But um, yeah, I guess they're not really ready with um, what's going to happen next with Dead Deadpool because you don't hear a whole lot about it. But I'm sure someone somewhere is working on it. But apparently, Sean uh, I mean, Levy is directing it. Okay. <laughs> um, he does some good stuff, I think, from memory. Um, but... he, pro he produces good stuff. Like he he's producer of Stranger Things, and he did the Adam Project most recently for. Netflix. Yeah, free guy. Free guy was pretty good, wasn't it? Hmm. He directed. Right. I think. Yeah. Um, I think he's directed Ryan Reynolds in that and The Adam Project, and they seem to get on well. Well, if, if I haven't seen The Adam Project, uh, but I was. I'm. This is just another failure on the trashy yeah. is the Disney Plus universe of of superhero characters. Um, yeah. It's. It's. Look, I'm not a historical revisionist who says all of a sudden the Netflix universe now is, is was brilliant because I know everyone loved Daredevil. I didn't. Um, but my God, it was fucking better than what the Disney is shitting out. Mm -hmm. A fuck time better than what Disney is shitting out. Other than WandaVision, I, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I know people shit on it. I thought that was pretty good in parts. Mm -hmm. I don't think they've done anything particularly good. No, it's been middling at best, unfortunately. They ha certainly haven't been able to pull together a full season. And considering none of those seasons have been able to complete a full season of really impressive stuff, it makes me very nervous the fact that they're doing a Deadpool show and they're going to have more episodes of Deadpool than there were in the first two seasons of Deadpool on Netflix. It's like, hmm. Daredevil? Yeah. Not Deadpool. Uh, Daredevil, sorry, yes. That's, that's um, my material, by the way. Fuck <laughs> off. Now it's my job to get shit this, mixed up. <laughs> but I just look at it and go, mm, even Netflix with the shorter episodes, they still weren't really able to pull together a full season of high, high quality. They had some filler in there and it died off. Then they're now going to have 18 episodes, and it's like, mm, I don't trust I think them. The first season of Jessica Jones might have been pretty close to the full season they yes. actually had. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was uneven. Mm. I don't, I, I'll take, I don't know superheroes and Marvel characters in particular, soup television because no one to date's really done very well in it. Disney had Netflix had a go, and even some people really liked Daredevil. I found mm -hmm. it very uneven. Mm -hmm. um, but other than Jessica Jones, they didn't do very well. No. Uh, TV, broadcast TV had a go with you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm -hmm. And that suffered from it. It gets better syndrome. Um, yeah. Two seasons before anyone was worth watching. And now I Disney. That's also referred to as Stockholm syndrome at that point. And Disney have now made a pretty big mess of just about everything, apart from the critics who apparently love everything they do because. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Maybe they don't get access to the next thing if they don't say it's good. Um, but it, maybe if they don't suit television. Yeah. <sighs> oh well. Um, it's that's the success of life. But we'll we'll keep plugging away and it'll give us yeah. things to complain about. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now. Is it time for a trick perspective? I think so. Yeah. So I'm going to queue it up. I'm going to give an apology in advance to our audience, uh, both streaming uh, now, if you're watching us or watching us later, uh, or if you listen to the audio version of this. 
Uh, Michelle and I did record this last week before what was to be the show, which didn't happen because of said internet issues. And we tried to do it whilst hotspotting on our phones. So it, I was telling George before the show started, it's a bit like those old days of um, when satellite communications were quite new and used to have that five-second delay. I was saying live to the entertainment reporter in LA, and they'd be like, Yes, hello, I'm coming to you live. You know, and it, it, it end up talking over each other. So there's a bit of that, guys. The video meant freeze up, it may not be great, but this week is a double episode. It's a little bit longer, I apologize. Mm -hmm. But two episodes, and we are talking about generations and first contact. Okay. And she's been looking forward to this, right? Um well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's just because it's well past the halfway mark now. <laughs> uh, that, that might be a stretch to say looking forward to it. I mean, <laughs> uh, I don't know that I could say that much. There's a new feature on, on here we can share files, local files on my computer, but it uh, doesn't seem to like it. Typical. Typical. So we might have to talk for a little bit because mine's mm -hmm. controls have now free, freezing. Free Hang off, honey. Hang on a second. Um, uh wait it's, it's not um, gonna hmm? i say it's almost gonna make me close this page in a second i have a feeling but um ah. we'll see what we can do um but it, it i think you're gonna find this trek perspective surprising mm. i know i did um sometimes she she really takes me by surprise by the things she catches in these films mm. and things that she well i don't say she misses but things she gets and things that she hates but mm. um it's still having a thing. This is what I get for trying to use new features of... These um, the new things. I might have to... You know, I'm going to click the button and we'll see what happens. If I drop off, I'll come right back. <laughs> and I am on my own. Uh, coming up after the Trek Respective, though, I'm going to be talking about two, uh, two new shows that have just come out. Um, the Sandman on Netflix, as well as Paper Girls on Prime. And we have got Travis is back. Sorry about that. It literally made me cancel a page. So we're going to try that again. And I'm just going to share my screen. Um, and we Go will... get the tried and true, Johnny. All right. Greetings, salutations, uh, dear listeners and viewers. And welcome back to the Trek Respective, the first one for quite some time. Um, those who were playing along from home who watched the last show might realize we had some issues with the unspecified virus of unknown origin initially, and that made recording difficult, and then we moved house. And even tonight, we don't have any internet because reasons. So, but we're still figuring it out, and we're still coming back to you because we promised you we would last week come back with a double edition of the Trek Respective. Uh, and we have done exactly that. So joining me, as ever, is the victim. Um, so I'm sorry, my co-host, uh, Michelle. Uh, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that uh, introduction, I guess. And the commitment that we're showing, the resilience, that word, just to keep on going, even though everything's just crashing around us. Stoicism, really. It's what. So it's the only way to be. Um, that's what you want. Um, so we're going to start this week with the first of the double up and that is Star Trek Generations is the one we watched it a couple of weeks ago now, I think, um, because reasons. Um, this is the seventh 
Star Trek film. This is the first of the Star Trek The Next Generation um, Star Trek films. Uh, first, Patrick's first appearance in the, the, uh, the films of um, Star Trek Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. Um, with the help of a long presumed dead Captain Kirk, Captain Picard must stop a deranged scientist willing to murder on a planetary scale in order to enter a space matrix, um, which is an interesting way of describing it. Um, they've quite cleverly found a way to have uh, Kirk and Picard crossover, despite their being separated by hundreds of years in the uh, show's canon. What did you make of Star Trek Generations? Well, um, as per usual with these films, for the first half an hour, I'm looking at everything but. Um, I don't know why they're so slow and so it's almost like they give you the first 10 minutes of um, something interesting and then it just slows for about 40 minutes and then you get a fantastic 10, 15 minute scene that you're like, oh, that that's good writing. I, I found that interesting. I think the problem we have here is one of differing tastes and interests. When it starts to get too sci-fi for me, I lose interest in five seconds. And when you have a real conversation between two people going through difficult circumstances, that's when I pay attention. And for me in this film, the best part of it, when you get Picard and you get uh, Kirk speaking to each other, uh, one with nostalgia, saying goodbye, uh, what he regrets, what he's going to and 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 you know passing on the mantle so that that absolutely captured my attention but that was actually off the ship um so it's when star trek is not being star trek that i find star trek interest interesting well i would argue this is star trek they, they do have conversations that i just feel like maybe you're more comfortable when there's not a it's not happening on a spaceship with aliens nearby no, i like a good spaceship and aliens film i'm not opposed to it but there's just something extraordinarily i consider myself to be a nerd so i was gonna say extraordinarily nerdy and i'm like that's not right there's something about it that's just so it feels like little little boys playing with their dolls with their make-believe and it just feels so foreign to me and my interests you know i love a good alien film um i, I have no Spaceship, um, alien, yeah, aliens. I don't understand because you like the Orville. I love. In, I, sorry. You like the Orville until you, at least you did until you realised how much it was a an homage. Well, I like the alien parts. I, when it gets too spaceshipy, too sci-fi, I kind of go, okay, move it along. You're talking about those high-level concepts. It's when it actually applies it and makes it quite human that I'm like, I'm in. Independence Day is a brilliant alien film. So I'll pay. Um, um, it's interesting. I talked to a few people about this one, Trek uh, Generations, and we were like, okay, it's going to be a tough one for you to get through because um, it's not deeply beloved, I think, in the uh, fandom. I certainly didn't remember it fondly. How is it not deeply beloved? I don't I understand. Why wouldn't it, it be? It's, it's fandom of fandom. Interestingly, watching it again with you a couple of weeks ago, um, that I... Um, I've forgotten how good those scenes were between Patrick Stewart and William Shatner. They were, they were excellent. Um, and there's some top. Again, directors at the best of their craft. 
they're two very fine actors and they were doing some really great work there and they bounced across each other really well and they had great chemistry on screen and they were well their scenes were generally well written um and well conceived and it's uh, the problem is it's 15 minutes of a two-hour film where that happens and i suspect mm. i mean who knows maybe if they'd done half the film together they wouldn't have been as good because they would have had to kill you know an hour of screen time instead of 15 minutes maybe that's all they had but um the fact that we waited you know uh, an hour and 40 minutes or something to get the 15 minutes of screen time they do well together um and maybe that's why people don't remember it so well because we kind of had they kept us uh waiting for so long to actually see it um uh, and once they did it they didn't it wasn't it was good as it was it just wasn't enough mm -hmm. and i think people found uh, kirk's death deeply underwhelming i think what's happening here is that the love for this is built through the series and not through the films oh i think that's the true film I mean, is kind of like a um, you've done well, Fat. <laughs> I think that's true. I think Star Trek Next Generation, which you will never endure, um, has some of the best, it would, it would look incredibly dated now, but like some of the right, some of the best television science fiction writing that's ever been done was on that show. Funny enough, I think Star Trek, the original series mostly is crap. There are some really good episodes in there, but there, most of it was on um, space westerns. Um, but you're right, I think this show has done its best work on television um, and not in, in the cinemas. But the generations, like I said, it's no, not... No, I'm not saying that it's done... I'm not saying that it's done its best work in the series because I can't judge that. What I'm saying, it seems to me, from what you're telling me, is that the love is engendered there because you spend time with the characters, you get to laugh and cry with the characters. It's actually investment that well, you made into this like, um, world. Whereas I come to this film completely. It's the, exactly. So I, I invested time with those characters. They were innovative when they came out. They were saying something interesting that wasn't said before. If we look back of it and we rip it from its context, then it's extraordinarily problematic in parts. Right. But at the same time, I remember living through it and going, this is interesting. Um, this is speaking to me and saying something to me that I hadn't seen or heard on te television before. So this is what I was saying the other day about them being temporal, that I've all also missed the temporal boat, so to speak, on when these particular films become so enmeshed in the zeitgeist at the time that they actually give you something to bond with, to be seen about, to identify with that i'm just not getting any but of that i think at the time you might have said this is potentially the, the film you've hated the least yes it actually is the film i've hated the least and the reason was i also uh, the villain's motivation was a bit um interesting as well um because didn't he want to go back to a particular yes, to, give, to give to give people a brief synopsis i won't go into the, the crazy details there is a space matrix which is called um i can't remember what the space room i can't remember what it's called um and uh the, the villain played uh in this uh, by um oh, what's his name the uh, malcolm mcdowell the academy award winner malcolm mcdowell and I think actually a really one of his better roles. I remember being kind of underwhelmed when I saw it initially, but I'm like watching it again. I'm like, he was really good. 
but he had been sucked into his space matrix um um in the past when during kirk's day um and but had been ripped away from it had been transported out of it by the enterprise um but he and Guinan, played by Goldberg, were both um, experienced enough of it to know that it was, as they described it, like living inside of joy um, mm. and spent the next 200 years figuring out a way to get back to that space matrix, which has a name in the film. I cannot remember for the life of me what it is. Um, That's a pretty cool idea. I, I and, kind of went, oh, and I really felt that 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 character's pathos about what they were going through and ultimately... I didn't, I didn't find them good or evil. I just found them human. What um, was interesting was it was a nice little allegory, which I'd never considered before an allegory for, for addiction, really, you know, someone has mm. this incredible high and they spend their entire life trying to get back to it. And to the point where nothing else matters, killing other people in this case, millions of people is, is nothing to uh, Malcolm McDowell's character. Uh, as long as he gets back to, to that place where he wants to be. Um, he, also, he had an interesting motivation. There's also something there about displacing history or displacing people. I'm sure there's something there. I'm getting vibes of that, but I, I'd have to think about it more to come up with something um, intelligible that I could communicate here, but uh, well, or intelligible that I could communicate here. But you know, when you take someone out of their context, um, it almost becomes like a random evil particle that creates havoc. You know um people like to belong people like to be in in a context there's something there i'm just sort of you know just grasping in the night for something but there, i know there's something there so we're going to try to be nitrate as we move on because like uh we've got two to talk about so that had, yep. interestingly a 6.6 on imdb rating has a meta score of 55 so neither the critics loved it and it wasn't deeply loved by the fandom either it was tolerated 6.6 is about where i think a lot of the other films landed we're going to move on to the film we saw last night, which is Star Trek First Contact. Oh, can I just say, I'm going to give it two lockdowns. Two so lock I add out of ten. Uh, nicely done uh, to Generations. Uh, Star Trek First Contact, on the other hand, has a 7.6 audience score in IMDb and a 71 meta score from critics. So this has now, been more love from both those audiences. Do, now, first of all, could it have anything to do with the uh sexy evil half human half robot thing and it's uh, you know there's a lot of men voting i don't know i don't i, I know you mentioned the, the scores a lot and i'm like mm, yeah but these, scores are, these, are, these are normalized scores this isn't just weirdos living in their basement this is you know in this case um a normalized score over 125,000 votes to get to about 7.6 from the audience um so this is the synopsis of this film the Borg travel back in time. You know, I need, I need to see the people who are the demographic of the people voting. I don't trust those scores. But the idea is a pretty good job of normalizing your scores, I think. So you actually have to be a regular voter to vote for things and stuff. But um, the, the Borg travel back in time. In yeah, there's still problems. First contact with an alien species. Captain Picard and his crew pursue them to assure that. Zephyr Cochran makes his maiden flight reaching warp speed. This was directed by Jonathan Frakes, who played Riker on the show and in the film. Uh, and you didn't like it. Tell us why. I liked 15 minutes. I like the conversation between the um, 
hive mind personified as I don't know why, but she's giving me Kate Beckinsville vibes for Underworld for some reason. Yeah, I can see that. Um, so the hive mind with uh, the yellow guy, what's his name? Data. The guy that that's data. That's it. Um, so there was a really interesting conversation about wanting to be human about the collective that, that I kind of went, Ooh, that's, that's very well written. And I, I could get into that. I wish that had been extended. Um, so that was, that was quite interesting, but the rest of it, I found so campy and so, ugh. and I appreciated the arc of the, um, Earth guy played by the guy who played the farmer in Pig. James Cromwell. Uh, babe, I should say. Yeah, so I, I appreciated the arc of that character, but distantly. I never actually got emotionally involved in that. And so the, the whole film for me, I just laughed so many times. I think at one point I was inventing songs, making fun of it, um, because it just was so cheesy in parts. Uh, I, I at least the effects are a little bit better. We got, you know, late 90s, mid to late 90s. I disagree. I don't think this film's campy at all. I think this one's the most exciting film they've made, the most coherent story. Um, there's no flat spots in here. It's really go, go, go until the end. And some people have criticised it for that because it didn't have enough of that tricky oh. uh, slow down philosophy and sit down and talk about things that most others do. It's also been criticised for... for having Picard's character act out of character with the way he did on the television show. No, I just, um, no, I, I just felt that all those action sequences just felt superfluous. Like they were not needed, that they were just there for audience um stimulation almost like let's what give action, you violence and action stimulation sure but it has to be part of the story there's no point in just having a car chase in the middle of the movie if you know there's no point to it but you've got aliens invading earth trying to take it over what about that is having a fight scene between humans trying to prevent the aliens from doing the thing how is that not in context of them trying to save the world They kept on going back and forth. Um, it didn't feel progressive, the action. It just felt like they kept on walking through, what was it, level 16 or something where the aliens had nested. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't see the context of it. Um, it. Just the other thing that surprises me about all this is how much it has influence because I saw Rick and Morty in this film. I, well, you know, I saw, um, I think they borrowed from Terminator. I think they borrowed from Die Hard, as you mentioned. It was a little bit like Die Hard on a ship, as I think you said. Um, so there's a lot of cross-pollination and, and just influence. But I just, no, didn't speak to me. It wasn't until that those 15 minutes where they were having this really, you know, interesting conversation that I thought well this is interesting and I'm like starting off with his memories um, of being a Borg and flashbacks 
I mean, that is just so, I'm 14 years old writing a short story. There's no sophistication to that whatsoever. I thoroughly and 100% disagree with you. Now, the reason why um, is that uh, this show, um, this movie, I think, leans most heavily into stuff that's happened on the TV show, more so than I think anything else in the films to date, in the sense that we've never met the Borg before now. You had never heard of them. Though they've become, I think, for most people who follow this even loosely, one of the more iconic um, mm -hmm. villains in science fiction. Um, uh, but to, they can't make a Trek film and expect everyone to have watched the film, the TV show, um, as much as, you know, to know everything that's happened and why Picard hates the Borg so much. Like, that he hasn't genuine... I mean, the film's about revenge and having a vendetta. Um, and if you don't know the story of what but he became a Borg and was, you know, abducted and, and assimilated, you know, um, that you don't have that context. He's just talking about context. You need to know he was a Borg and had been assimilated um, to understand why he's so angry at them. Otherwise, he, what, his actions really don't make a whole lot of sense. There are other ways to do it in a more sophisticated way than throwing these images at me at the beginning. It just, it really felt like I just wrote my first short story. Well, I feel it like was just no sophistication to that. And so that was immediately. So that's exactly equivalent. That's the equivalent um, uh, stylistic tactic as it was all a dream. You know, it's like, oh, okay might have worked for the crowd in the 1920s but we're beyond that sort of storytelling now I, I think it's perfectly legitimate to, to say to give the audience a view from the start of a film that he was a borg and that that you know because that's a constant theme they come back to in the film um i think we're probably going to have to end it pretty soon because the internet here is sketchy mm. as and it's like no, I do, I'm not telling you, I'm not saying that they what that shadow. The, the internet here is sketchy as fuck. No. Uh, it's like having a, a a satellite phone call from the 1970s right now. We've got about a two minute delay between you saying something in the other room and it appearing on my computer screen. It's probably very, very frustrating for anyone to watch. Before we finish up, though, I'm assuming this is going to get a very high lockdown score from you. Mm, yeah, I would say this is probably a, uh, no, I'm actually going to give it a five and a half lockdowns. It's not the worst one. Five and a half. So it's about a five and a half out of 10. So four and a half out of 10. Well, as I said to you last night, you didn't like, this is generally, mm. arguably, but generally the most loved of the uh, four Star Trek Next Generation films. You've got two more to come. Um, I could be wrong. I haven't looked up their scores on the internet, but they are, in as I remember them, significantly lesser films than this one. So the fact you didn't enjoy this doesn't bode well for those two, but at the same time, there could be something in one of those that you enjoy that I've just forgotten about um, uh, or just is less sci-fi-ish that sort of appeals to you. But um, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, via satellite from um, Vulcan, apparently, because that's how long the, the message is taken here. Um, 
and we will be back next week to talk about Star Trek Insurrection. I think that's the next one. Yes. Um, thank you, Michelle. Thank you. And back to you, Speezy. There we go. A double bill filled with some technical difficulties there, but still interesting thoughts. She always Apologies again, people. It was probably hard to watch, but it was interesting that she liked Generation so much. Hmm. I don't remember liking it when it came out. I don't think many people do remember yeah. it as fondly. I I just remember it being like I'm I'm a big fan of Malcolm McDowell, and I was like, yeah, this is first next generation movie, and then the William Shatner stuff in it, and it's like, oh, um, hmm, I don't know how I feel about it when I actually watched it. And I was, I was, she had, she had some very interesting thoughts on um, uh, fuck, uh, First Contact. It, it is. Um, it, it's the, I think I've said it before, it's the advantage of having a complete clean skin mm. come in and, uh, and give you their thoughts on, you know, something that we grew up with, you and I, and, you know, I'm deeply ensconced in the fandom. So um, it's, it's really fascinating to hear somebody mm. who has no, dog in the fight to some mm. degree uh, give you their thoughts and somebody who's quite good at interpreting story mm. and story elements um so uh it's it's been an interesting process um <laughs> as i said in the show she's not got much to look forward to in the next couple of weeks i i mm. don't remember insurrection being very good i don't remember nemesis really hitting uh the mark for me either but we did mm. have a good trailer the other day together and she did like to look for trailer so maybe Okay. Uh, just maybe there could be something in there to enjoy apart from a very young Tom Hardy. Yeah. Um, I, I'd be, and it'd be fascinating when we get to JJ Abrams because uh, I don't think I'm, it's a spoiler here, but Michelle is not a massive fan of JJ Abrams and his mystery box bullshit. Um, <laughs> so, but I kind of thought he did a pretty good job in the first Star Trek reboot. Mm-hmm. I even enjoyed Into Darkness, which a lot of Trekkies didn't. So, mm. um, but that's all yet to come. Mm-hmm. There's now, five got, more to go. Five more. You've got some interesting new TV to talk about, I think. Yes, I have. Yes. I am going to talk first and foremost about one of my favorite books of all time finally coming to the screen. That is Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Now, this is the big new Netflix show that largely seems to be taking the world by storm. Certainly reviews seem to be very, very popular about it. It seems to be hitting the mark far more than um, uh, some other Neil Gaiman properties, such as American Gods, which was very touch and go for a lot of people. I rather liked what they did with it, but I seem to be a bit of an outlier for that, and that got cancelled before they were able to finish it, I believe. Um but for those who do not know, um, a wizard attempting to capture death to bargain for eternal life traps her younger brother, Dream, instead. Fearful for his safety, the wizard kept him imprisoned in a glass bottle for decades. After his escape, Dream, also known as Morpheus, goes on a quest for his lost objects of power. That is a broad strokes detailing of what the story is 
um, because when you're dealing with, for all intents and purposes, the god of dreams, a realm where literally anything is possible and can happen, you're going to be dealing with some interesting concepts, notions, ideas, visuals, and emotions. And, of course, this being a graphic novel adaptation, things are going to change. And there has been some hubbub, shall we say, about the casting of Gwendolyn Christie. Uh, is it Gwendolyn Christie? Gwendolyn... Where the fuck is she? Uh, I don't see her name in here. Uh, yeah, Gwendolyn Christie, who is most famous, I suppose, for most people, either as her time as um, uh, Brienne of Tarth in uh, Game of Thrones or Captain Phasma in the Star Wars movies. That yeah. um, she was cast as a rather androgynous Lucifer Morningstar. Um, and for a lot of people, Lucifer is now somewhat synonymous with the, I think it was NBC slash Netflix show of Lucifer starring Tom Ellis, which was a bizarre, odd mutation of the graphic novel based on the same idea, which was spawned off of the Sandman. Um, but... I think they did really fucking well. My God. Um, we've got um, a gentleman called Tom Sturridge, who I don't think I know any of his work. He was on, uh, in On the Road, Far From the Maddening Crown in 2015, Pirate Radio in 2009. But beyond that, I, I've barely heard of any of the projects that he's been in. And he is perfectly cast pitch perfectly cast as dream he's got this dreamy wafting kind of voice that he speaks to he's very minimalist he's not going into these huge long monologues uh, about kind of metamorphosis metamorphosis or anything like that he is um a displaced god who is suddenly realizing, fuck, I've got to refind my place in the universe. And he does such a wonderful um, representation of what that must feel like. When you see him, you see this pain, you see this frustration of, I was and still am a god, but I do not have my full power yet. And this is frustrating. And it's humanity is confusing and, and, and emotions and feelings and this journey of revenge um that i'm on is it worthwhile is it is, is it folly um he just does so well you've got um some other famous uh, people in there you've got the voice of Patton oswald playing matthew the raven and as is the legend of morpheus the dream he's always accompanied by a raven and um, Matthew is in his new Raven. Um, and he does a really nice job of being somewhat the foil to the um, lethargy and despondency of Dream in their sequences. Because 
I would imagine that there'd be quite a few people who would kind of look at the way that Tom plays Dream and kind of goes, oh, he's doing a little bit of Edward Cullen from the Twilight movies. Um, but there's more to it than just being a pretty pretty face. He is a pretty pretty handsome man. Um, but there's, there's more depth and nuance to his performance than what Robert Patrick was. Not Robert Patrick. That would be weird casting. Robert Patrick. Wow. <laughs> uh, Robert Patterson. Um, there's just more more skill in the performance at that point. Robert Patterson is has clearly proven that he is a, actually a competent, uh, if not very good, actor. But at the point of Twilight, mm, he was still learning his craft. Um, our main villain, so to speak, of the show is played by Boyd Holbrook who is definitely a name that you probably know. Most will probably recognize him. He played Pierce in Logan, Old Man Logan, as well as he was in The Predator, the, the very average, bad. Average, one. yeah, Chain mm -hmm. Black. Yep. Um, I think even he wants most people to forget about that. Um, and for some of the, the more very British people, we've got David Fulis in there playing uh, John D., and uh, Jenna Coleman doing a gender-swapped version of um, John Constantine as Joanna Constantine. And it's an interesting take. They didn't necessarily need to do it, I, but it brings an interesting new approach to the character of John Constantine, which we have seen many variations of, thanks to Keanu Reeves being Constantine in the movie, which was an odd mutation of um, all his engines, graphic novel, fantastic version um, mm -hmm. of that character, as well as Matt Reeves, who, um, not the director, but the actor who played him in the short-lived Constantine TV show, as well as um, Legends of Tomorrow. Um, so this them gender swapping John to Joanna Constantine and using it to inform the story and the character is exactly what we, we've been talking about for so many years now about if you're going to gender swap something, make it part of their fucking story, make it a part of their reason or validation for being in this world or for acting how they are going to act and reacting how they're going to react. Suddenly having this kick-ass sardonic, con man of a sorcerer and schema be gender swapped to a female is instantly going to put different different kind of attributes and ideologies into that role and it makes it compelling and interesting and it suddenly adds this new layer to a to a somewhat well um, established character so i think it's a good kind of starting point or hopefully a good template at least for if they do it later on with other properties, if they ever gender swap James Bond actually, or, you know, cast Bond as a black guy or whatever they're going to do. It's like, yeah, just use it to inform the character and tell something different about that character. It's great. Um, but the the real standout for this is hmm i would probably say david thewlis who plays john d and he is 
um, the child of the, as I mentioned in the synopsis, the wizard that originally captured Dream. And he has gotten possession of a ruby that has got a lot of Dream's power in it. And there's a fantastic episode and really extended sequence, essentially, where he is able to use it to change reality to a certain point. And he just goes into a diner. And he just he's there just being nonchalant, being he looks a little odd because he's still dressed in kind of um he was held again um, in prison for a long time. So he's still kind of dressed in this thing after a quite a cool escape sequence. That's very casual, but chilling at the same time. David Thewlis is a very strong, capable actor, especially when he plays those older wizened, creepy people. He's good. Creepy. Um, but you see this scenario and these character moments just evolve and change as, reality and their perception of it just changes and morphs and mutates and goes from being this dream moment where things are going great and wonderful to becoming a fucking nightmare it's so masterfully done it's genuinely delightful to watch in a challenging way um, this a fantasy show yes this is definitely a fantasy show Definitely um, a fantastic show. Would you recommend it to me? I would say I would encourage you to watch it. And but if you just don't like the story that is being told after the first two episodes, you are not going to enjoy the rest of it. Or I doubt you would enjoy the rest of it because it does kind of plant its flag of how it's going to deliver story and the general kind of feel of those stories very early on. And it is, to its credit, it's done almost dreamlike where you'll have these moments. There's there's a bit, uh, a sequence in it where his uh, dream is remembering this conversation that he has over the course of hundreds of years with this one man who, they, him and his sister... Um, they are the endless. There are seven of them, I think. Um, dream, death, delirium, um, dementia. Oh, I can't remember them all, but they're all these essentially eternal beings. And dream and death overhear this man in a pub in like 1500 saying, oh, you're all fools. You only die because you accept that as an inevitability. If you don't believe in death, death's not going to find you. And so dream and death have a bit of a wager. If by taking him out of the Deadpool, so to speak, and not dying, will he, after 100 years, change his mind and look for death as an escape and so every hundred years he meets this man and just has a bit of a review of the last hundred years and it's just so well done it's phenomenally written as a comic book it is one of the very best books ever and it is very graciously transplanted into a tv series here i don't want to say too much because i don't want to spoil the 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 show 
but I really do recommend everyone give this a try. Um, maybe not necessarily just the first episode because it evolves beyond that first premise. It's not like a procedural thing. This is one story told over episodes and it's the journey of dream. Um, Would you compare yeah. it to say American Gods? Cause that was very, I, I didn't like the book. I didn't like the TV show. It's different to American Gods. This is, it feels different. I, I can't, I don't know how to, how to put it in any way. The, Hmm. Yeah, I, I can't really work I'm out. I'm going to say that we shouldn't necessarily write it off just because we didn't like mm. American Gods. Yes, this is a very different creature to American Gods. Um, it feels very different in its approach. And um, while Neil Gaiman is easily one of my favourite novelists of all time and writers of his graphic novels, phenomenal stuff... Um, a lot of his things um, and a lot of the work that he's done on, like he did a, a rewrite on uh, Beowulf, I think, for Robert Zemeckis. He did the adaptation, uh, the English translation adaptation of Princess Mononoke for Studio Ghibli. Um, he's done some Doctor Who episodes. Obviously, he's got um, American Gods um, under his name. This is the best interpretation of his work to a fresh medium that I have seen. And the actors that come in and deliver the performances are so on point. It is wonderful. And we got spoiled as well because a week or so after the first season just got dumped as is typical Netflix fashion on Netflix, we suddenly realized, oh, they've just dropped another episode, which is two, two different things. And one of them is animated and it's the story about cats and what they dream about. And it sounds absurd, but it's wonderful. It feels a little bit like a short story that you'd get in Love, Death and Robots or something Which like that. Which has been renewed for a fourth season, by the way. Yes. Very happy to we hear We were that. shocked. I mean, we were, expecting, mm. we, we were not expecting that. Mm. Um, and then the, the second part of it has um, Arthur Darville, who is not only a Doctor Who alumni, but he was also in um, uh, Legends of Tomorrow, as well as uh, Derek Jacoby, who, again, is in Doctor Who. And um, the, But it's a story of a man who, cap, uh, who gets possession of a muse and the repercussions of holding on to a muse for longer than you should and taking advantage of a muse. And it's a great story. It's one of the best. Um, it's like little kind of side stories in the Sandman saga. And, oh, they did it so well. It's great. It's really yeah. good. This sounds like it's exactly the kind of thing you enjoy. So you had another, yes. I think, you uh, were going to talk about as yes. well. Yeah. So this was over on Amazon Prime, and it's another graphic novel adaptation. This one is called Paper Girls. And Paper Girls is interesting. It's, um, I've only watched the first episode and a half. Four young friends, Paper Roots, are disrupted on Hell Day 1988 when they unknowingly travel, uh, time travel to 2019, 
while searching for a way home, they come face to face with their adult selves and learn how to work together to save the world. It's an interesting one because definitely straight away, the fact that it is kids from the 80s doing a paper round, it definitely kind of has a feel of, oh, this is a bit Stranger Things light. And having this supernatural twist on the story, again, it whilst it's not, the, not at all the same story as Stranger Things, it just feels like, oh, this is a riff on that. It's like, oh, you know, we had the Hunger Games and then, of course, you got the Maze Runner and everything else that, that came along because they were jumping on that young adult bandwagon. It's, it's an interesting show. I don't know if I like it, though. I don't know if it's got the quality to it. Um, the only um, actor in it that I really know is because um, the the four young actresses are Cameron Jones, who plays Tiffany, Riley Lyle uh, Neelet, who plays Erin, Sophia Rosinski, Mac, and Fina Straza, who plays K uh, KJ. Um, the only actor that I know of is Ali Wong. Um, and uh, Jason Manzukas, who is generally considered a comedy actor. He's turned up in Brooklyn Nine-Nine as um, Agent Pimento. And he does voices for Big Mouth and things like that. He's interesting, but he hasn't appeared in the, the first episode and a half that I've seen. So it's largely people that probably have got like careers in TV, but I certainly don't recognize any of them. Um, it's not directed or written by anyone that I'm aware of. Um, it, it's, it's an odd one and I don't know if I want to keep going. And the, I'll tell you some, one thing, this has one big red flag for you. And that is, it's based on a comic book written by Brian K. Vaughan. I don't know who that is. You, um, he was the guy who adapted Under the Dome. Oh. Yeah. And he did some of the later episodes of Lost, I think it was. Oh. Um, so he's not got a great track record in the TV realm. He's got some great stuff in comics, like Why the Last Man? Um, but it doesn't seem to translate well to the TV at this point. So, um, yeah, I definitely don't think you would particularly enjoy this, not at this stage. Okay. Well, yeah. you've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> I smashed through as much as I could. And I watched the final season of uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but I'll go into that at a later date. Very good. I'm going to change pace if that's okay. How dare you, sir? And I said, uh, being the uh, nouveau uh, riche uh, bourgeois... Uh, middle-class hipster that I am, I went to see some stuff at Myth, like I mentioned at the start. And uh, one film I happened to catch was a Chilean film mm -hmm. called 1976. Uh, now, I don't know how easy it's going to be for people to see it, but maybe if it sounds interesting, I thought I'd talk about it. Mm -hmm. Actually, 1976, Carmen heads off to her beach house when the family priest asks her to take care of a young man he is sheltering in secret Palmer steps onto unexplored territories away from the quiet life she is used to. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I won't bother talking about the cast or crew here because you've never heard of any of these people. Like they are, I imagine, uh, big in either Chile or Latin America. But the main cast, I guess, it, kind of the main uh, actor is um, Aline Kupenheim, who I think is Spanish. Um, now, I'm all about seeing stuff about uh, stories that are set during um, totalitarian dictatorships because that's my jam. Um, <laughs> you know how to have fun, sir. I sure do. <laughs> um, and that's one of what attracted me to this story. Um, and, wow, it's a bit of a letdown. Oh. So I think what the film's trying to explore, so for those who don't know, there was a military coup in Chile in 1975 where the leftist Salvador Allende was overthrown and murdered by the military and General Augusto Pinochet was installed as their, the dictator and he remained in power 20 years or something, not quite, but, you know, for a long time. And we ruled, at least initially, with an iron fist. You know, thousands of people were disappeared, um, a.k.a. murdered, um, as, was the, as was the style at the time. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as that's the style at the time. So well, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep right on moving to the next one after this. But um, uh, that's where this film is set. Uh, this is 1976, so the coup has happened and, the, the military is in charge of a country, and uh, our protagonist, Carmen, is a middle-class wife of a, a doctor who, it's insinuated, works perhaps with a hunter or at least has contacts with powerful people. And they, she's moved up to their beach house for the season just to sort of hang out uh, mm. and for various you know social gatherings. So the priest in the area is sheltering a young man who has been shot in the leg, Asked okay. her to help out by looking after him. Uh, and she gets more and more involved with looking after him and trying to help keep him safe and move him on back to you know, the resistance, for want of a better term. And mm. I, in, in doing so, I think this is really about um, someone from the middle class who was very much sheltered, I think, from the worst of what happened in that country, at least initially, because mm. of the money that they had, who she was and who she was married to. Um, meant that they weren't as um, they weren't the targets, the key targets of the military, mm. and their their wealth and their money basically kept them insulated from the shenanigans going on, for want of a better term. Mm. And this is her bumping up against it for the first time, and really sort of starting to actually take a journey into into that world of what these people are going through, and I think start to understand some of the horrors, if you will. Uh, of what the military government were, were doing at the time mm. is very subtle. It's all very nuanced okay. um, and kind of boring, frankly. I think there's also points to be made here about as a woman, she's sub, you know she's subject to her husband's wishes, being that you know there's a country they're subjected to you know the wishes of the, the military dictatorship, um, and you know the, the some of the horrible attitudes are explored that the richer classes had towards the people in the bottom, calling them, you know, vermin and traitors against their country. And there was an interesting angle there to sort of be exploring against, uh, contrast this story, mm. the, what these people, the characters in the 70s were saying, to what you hear people in the United States saying today about people who don't support their particular flavour of politics. And that mm. really seems to be mildly interesting. And you're like, okay, I'm on board and going. And then the film just ends. 
Oh. And you're like, oh, there was nothing, nothing happened. Like, I mean, nothing happens to, to Carmen. She doesn't really have a reckoning of great interest. It's just sort of peters out. Um, I, I think the insinuation is that she gets caught. Spoilers, guys. I mean, it's going to be really hard to find unless you happen to have a, a guy or a really good source in the Chilean film industry. But um, the insinuation is that she's caught or mm -hmm. the young man she's protecting is disappears mm -hmm. um, and the priest is reassigned overseas. And it's insinuated that the, the military government has figured out that she's been helping a resistance and that her husband's had to step in to protect it. Okay. It's all very subtle and unspoken. And I kind of, I mean, I am a fucking Muppet. There's absolutely no doubt about that. It really <laughs> genuinely is that person that uh, like Seinfeld used to talk about outside the cinema going, who is that guy? Why did they kill that guy? Why that guy was with him? Why would they kill him? Um, and so, I'm that guy after the cinema. What, what happened? So, it was so unspoken and so slow and um did you say it, whether this was based on a real story or i didn't and i don't if it is it it didn't point that out to us okay i don't believe it is mm. um and so i found it really underwhelming that, mm. that it was no real blow off at the end i mean i didn't expect her to come out and go actually i look like a middle-class wife but actually i'm a highly trained navy seal and, you know, um, sort of take to the mountains and kill half of the Chilean army, a la Rambo. I was like, that would have probably been more interesting. I'll pay. Um, My life is changing and I'm a plucky advertising executive. <laughs> She's a plucky doctor's wife. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just found it so underwhelming that there was no – it didn't feel like it was a really satisfying conclusion of the story. It's kind mm. of a wink and a nod at the audience going, that guy who was a neighbour who found, the, you know, like, that was actually the government saying, sit the fuck down, shut the fuck up. You're lucky you're married to this guy. Kind of, but eh, it was okay. really half-assed, which is really strange because all the the, uh, the Toffee reviewers who've actually seen this at film festivals around the world mm. um, have um, given it you know, outstanding reviews. Okay. Um, and where I get think this film gets interesting, this is a film that was made this year. Okay. Uh, was to contrast it against a film called The Official Story. Now, The okay. Official Story is an Argentine film from 1985, so I'm really going down the fucking rabbit hole here, people. Um, <laughs> this one is really fucking hard to find in Australia. Like, yeah. impossible to find in Australia. You cannot buy it anywhere. You can't rent it anywhere. You can't stream it anywhere. Legally. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's different overseas. This film won the Academy Award in uh, 1985 or 86 for Best Foreign Picture. So okay. it's got quite a, um, a heritage. Uh, and our main star is uh, Norma Aleandro, who mm -hmm. is, it's been described to me as the, um, the Argentinian uh, Meryl Street. So, Okay. an icon in that country. But, mm. So this film's um, during the final months of the Argentine, Argentinian military dictatorship in 1983, a high school teacher sets out to find out who the mother of her adopted daughter is. So, uh, and again, it's a fairly similar style of story. She is a high school teacher 
who is married to some sort of high-level executive. Never quite explore what he does, but he does hobnob with some pretty important-looking people, including generals. And so, um, again, for those who don't know, it was the style at the time. There was a military dictatorship in power in Argentina, Argentina from the mid-'70s to the, the mid-'80s, roughly speaking. <laughs> and they didn't like you. You were quite common that you just disappeared. AKA, you're murdered. And in some interesting and creative ways, including flying you in a helicopter out over the Atlantic Ocean and shoving you out. That really, that kind of shit really happened. Um, it's called the Dirty War. But she, again, is this character who is insulated from this by the fact that they are middle class and of money, if you will. And her husband is a fairly well off character. We never presented as being, you know, super rich millionaires in mansions. They live fairly humbly. But um, they obviously have money and and influence. They hobnob mm. with rich people, and their daughter is sort of a center of their world. But the, okay. the we learn very quickly that their daughter is adopted, okay. and uh, our, our, our protagonist Alicia meets um, a um, a fellow teacher uh, at the school she works at, where she teaches history. He teaches literature. And my God, it's the most raucous literature class you've ever seen of people reciting fucking uh, Argentine cowboy poetry. Um, it's, okay. it's like it's like a Latin American version of um, Dead Poets Society. I was half expecting to see, oh, Captain, my Captain. But, um, <laughs> but he's, he's of a very different breed to her in the sense that she, at the start of the film, is very much in, in favor of you know, the status quo and the founding fathers of Argentina were wonderful. And, you know, um, a, ch- a student in her class who um, says some stuff that could be interpreted as being uh, anti-dictatorship gets reported to a principal mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But this, the, um, the teacher sort of introduces her to, I guess, some idea. He opens the world up a little bit and he's kind of a supporter of a re- – he's against the dictatorship and has some fairly, I guess – Challenging ideas, for want of a better term, at the time. And what that starts to introduce in her is is she actually witnesses one of the big protests that were taking place at the time. I won't go into the history of it at the time, but the people, the the, the mothers of the people who had been disappeared started a massive protest movement, which actually ended up, along with the um, uh, the, the, uh, Falklands War, which you may have heard of. Um, I'm British. That never happened. Never happened. Um, <laughs> it ended up toppling the the um, the, the, the dictatorship, um, but in doing so, she starts to see learn about the possibility that her adopted daughter may have actually been stolen or taken from one of the people who'd been disappeared. Um, this was a okay. common practice at the time. Children were taken from undesirables, for want of a better term, who were later murdered and then given or sold to well-off Argentinian families, a little bit like the stolen generation here in Australia, but Jesus. not as racial, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can start to see the horror building her as she starts to really go down the rabbit hole of mm-hmm. who is my daughter's mother? Mm-hmm. And, and her husband tries to sort of blow her off. Oh, I don't know. Forget about it. Don't worry about it. But she just can't. It becomes an obsession for her to get to the bottom of this story. And... Mm-hmm where this film lands, and I, I don't want to spoil this one because I think this one's a much better film to try and see if you're interested in the topic, mm. um, is has this incredible blow-off at the end. 
between the, uh, the, the, the husband and the wife. And it's much more successful, I think, in telling a story about um, that kind of relationship existing inside of a, a dictatorship um, where, yeah. you know, uh, their continued ex- well-off existence relies so heavily on that dictatorship continuing at the mm. same time as as at least one of the people in the relationship start to realize just how horrible that dictatorship is and what mm. they've really done and what they're actually a part of. Um, I found this an incredible, this is not an entirely successful movie in some parts. There is a little long. There are mm. some stretches where you kind of go, well, I don't think you needed that in there. But like um, from start, the, the performances are Fucking outstanding, like yeah. outstanding performances. Um, really, probably the kind of performances that were or an English language film would have got Oscar nominations. I think, apart from foreign language, mm. um, and the blow. This is where I guess it, it, it really the blow off in the end. This, the conclusion is incredibly satisfying. Okay, horrifying but satisfying, if that makes sense. Okay. Um. So I. Don't know anyone's keen on seeing something like this, but if you are, check mm. it out. I think it's available places overseas, maybe. Um, I don't know. It's 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 just like a slightly tricky one to get your hands on. And what was the name of that one again? Official story. The official story. Uh, it's the okay. English language uh, title La Historia Oficial. My uh, Spanish obviously is less than uh, perfect. And if I can, I'd like to quickly talk about one other film I saw at Miff. It's probably the only other one that I'd recommend. Yes. This is a horror film called Speak No Evil. Uh, a Danish family meets a Dutch family on, they met on a holiday. What was supposed to be an idyllic weekend slowly uh, starts unraveling as the Danes try to stay polite in the face of unpleasantness. Okay. Um, so, unfortunately, the filmmakers chose two nationalities that both start with D. So I've tried explaining this to a few people. I've had to slow down because they're Danes and they're Dutch. Uh, <laughs> the Danes meet this Dutch family on a holiday in Italy. Uh, they go, they're very, very overly friendly, the Dutch family, but they have lunch together. And then we cut later on, they've gone back home to, to wherever it's the Danes are from, Sweden or something probably. Um, okay. and, sorry, Denmark. Um, and they get a postcard from the Dutch family going, hey, you should come stay with us in our place in, in Holland. And they do so. But the reason they do so is to avoid being impolite. And that sets the tone for a lot of his, probably the first two-thirds of his film is everything that Danes do is about being polite and being, and good manners. And it becomes almost a comedy of manners and politeness where they're put in these horrible, uncomfortable situations, but they don't say anything or do anything about it because to do so would be impolite. So they go and stay with this Dutch family who live in a country in Holland and they're British, brutish, not British, brutish, um, and thuggish and rowdy and just low rent people. And stuff happens like they 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 they, they yell at their son in front of these people and they get the screaming matches at him. They go take them out to dinner and they go to this shit house restaurant and they make the, the, the guests pay and get into some serious dirty dancing action right in front of them. Um, and all the while, they're not saying anything because they don't want to be impolite. The, the filmmakers, Christian and Mads Tuftrup, um, I'm probably <laughs> murdering those names, set out to make a film that would be 
the most incredibly uncomfortable viewing experience you could possibly imagine. Wow. Okay. They have succeeded. Like, I went and saw this film, a friend of a show, Patria, who spent at least a third of the film with her hand over her eyes. Um, and it's not uncomfortable in the way you might think. There's not a whole lot of graphic violence or gore or that kind of thing. Um, it's just the situations of the social awkwardness of being in a, an empty restaurant with your hosts drunkenly groping each other meters away from you. Um, mm. And you're kind of going, oh, it's creepy or um, I won't spoil it for you. <laughs> There's some other moments in this which you just cringe. The whole thing is super, super cringy and uncomfortable to watch. And the filmmakers super successfully create this real air of tension because you know this is a horror film. That's how they marketed it. Yeah. Um, so you know something really fucking horrible is going to happen. You're just waiting for it. And they build this incredible sense of, of dread and terror. Probably the film in some ways that kind of reminded me most of sometimes was The Shining. Not in a sense that there's any kind of supernatural element to the story. There's nothing like that. But I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you've seen The Shining recently, but there's that scene at the beginning of a film where you've got the helicopter shot of the car going up the mountain. Yeah. And you've got that really bombastic, yeah. dreadful, dun, 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 you know, you're like, it's like the kind of music you'd expect at the climax of a film, but it's at the right at the start. And all that's yeah. happening is a car driving up a road. Yeah. This film does that as well. Like you'll be just going out and playing okay. on the swings okay. for kids and it'll be slamming you with this music going, what the fuck, where's it coming from? Um, when the film does reach its crescendo towards the end, and we learn what's really going on with this Dutch couple and why they've invited the Danes there and what they're, what they're up to, what their goal here is. It, mm. it, like, fucking blew my mind. I walked away and I was uncomfortable for a full 24 hours after this film thinking about it. It really stayed with me. Wow. So um, it's called Speak No Evil is the uh, English title. Do I'm not even going to fucking attempt the actual original title because i got no idea how to say it. Nice um, very, very good. Um, I don't know how easy this is a Danish-Dutch production. Mm. It's mainly in uh, Danish and Dutch and a little bit of English. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how easy it's going to be to see, but mm. if it comes up at an art house cinema near you, you see it on a video on demand platform, or if there's a film festival nearby and this is showing, yeah, one of the better horror films I've seen in a very, very long time. See the early premise and the, the the early way you talked about it of being sort of like that overly polite couple with the awkwardness. I just suddenly imagined Hollywood going, you know what? We can turn this into a comedy, and it'll be an overly polite Canadian family meeting a Texan family or something like that. It and, could work. It could yeah. work in the states that way, but I mean, I don't think you can. When I say it's a comedy of politeness, I don't think it's play for laughs in a mm. way. You could play it for laughs. But it's more the fact that, you know, like I said, you're so tense and uncomfortable seeing mm. these people put in these situations because can you imagine being around, you know, you're hanging out with your girlfriend and you go out mm. and meet some of her friends or some of your friends and yeah. they start screaming at their child while you're in the room. It'd be like, mm, what do you do? You can't really tell them off. Like they're being really abrupt and horrible to their child. Like social, social norms say you shouldn't be telling other people how to parent their kids, but... <laughs> the same time they're being a real dick to this kid you know like that's the kind of situation we're talking about and mm. it, it does it beautifully um and the payoff at the end 
there's a couple of moments where you go, eh, I don't know, I'd buy that. Like, that doesn't, that seems to have worked out very conveniently, but mm. um, it's brutal. Is the only thing I can say. Okay. Cool. Well, that pretty much wraps us up for this show, I think. Um, a little teaser for next week. I'm going to be watching um, a movie at the Sci-Fi Festival in Melbourne at Cinema Nova, home of fantastic fucking cinema, by the way, for world cinema. Um, it is a movie that's come out this year called Polaris, and it is set in 2144 against the harsh backdrop of a subarctic wasteland. Sumi, a human child raised by Mama Polar Bear, narrowly escapes capture from a brutal Morad hunting party and sets out across the vast winter landscape. When Sumi stumbles across Frozen Girl, an unlikely friendship is forged, and together they race ahead of the vindictive hunters towards the only guiding light Sumi knows, the Polaris Star. Well, that sounds bizarre. Yeah. You've chosen I'm well. excited for this. I don't know anyone or anything of, um, connected to it, but it just sounds interesting, and I am all for it. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's, what these films are for, that's what these festivals are for. You see stuff, you maybe you're never going to get a chance to see it again. Yeah, even looking at you know how IMDb has. Oh, you might also like this. It's um, one that I really do want to see. Uh, Crimes of the Future, the new David Cronenberg movie. Um, one called Moloch, which I don't know. Bestia, um, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. A history Hard-boiled. of book horror. Hard-boiled, yeah. Uh, something in the Dirt. The um, He Who Gets Slapped. <laughs> I don't know what to expect from this movie with these recommendations. I think you should, if, it's, if they're recommending a Cronenberg film to you, I think you expect something fucking weird. Yeah, so it's gonna it's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be really really interesting. Let's well, look forward to next week. Mm. And of course, we've got our chain movie, <laughs> another really serious, twisted, bizarre, unusual Hollywood picture, Suburban Commando. <laughs> um, I will have at least I will have um some thoughts on She Hulk episode two. Whether Travis sticks around or not, we will find out. Um. I'll talk a little bit about the season finale of um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine because it was finally available on Netflix. We have got the next episode of The Trek Respective as well as the wonderful delights and surprises of what Travis picks out. I have lots of things I could watch. It's just a mm. question of whether I have time. Uh, <laughs> making a making room look this nice doesn't happen overnight. It's been, mm-hmm. a, mm-hmm. it's been, a, it's been a journey. It is a labour. It is a labour. But thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Please don't forget, if you if you are watching us live, you can always jump into the chat and ask us questions or give us recommendations. We love taking recommendations, good or bad. You just have to give us a reason why we should watch it. Um, it's been a while since we had a recommendation. but I think um, it might have been Thomas the Tank Engine. Yeah, Siren Divine, you still owe me for that one. <laughs> um but thank you very much don't forget to like subscribe and share on twitter you can check us out on facebook um on uh, youtube as well as at the fry brain at evil trav on the twitters thank you so much again and good night good night everyone <laughs>